This is Annie Stevens Gleason, Minister for Worship and Incorporation here at Church of the Redeemer. This is the third follow-up conversation in our Forum Lenten series focusing on the work of Becoming Beloved Community, the Episcopal Church's journey and commitment to respond to racial injustice and grow a community of reconcilers, justice makers, and healers. We have the Reverend Philip Duvall, rector here at Redeemer, and Megan Johnson, chair of our Becoming Beloved Community Steering Committee, to take a look back at this past Sunday's forum. In our conversation, we referenced Jamar Tisby and his book, The Color of Compromise. Jamar also hosts a podcast, Pass the Mic, the premier podcast of The Witness, a black Christian collective. Find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Annie. Good Thanks morning. for having me yeah, on this podcast welcome. again. Hi, Annie. Hi, <laughs> Hi Phil. Hi, Megan. Megan, could you could we look back a little bit on this past Sunday and and have a little overview of what we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our session this past Sunday uh, focused on the first of the four quadrants of the Becoming Beloved Community Initiative, telling the truth about the church and race. So we started off with an introduction to the overall initiative, then Phil led us through a conversation the following Sunday on the scriptural call and vision for Becoming Beloved Community and racial reconciliation and racial justice. And then this week, um, we started to really dive into, okay, well, what does it look like for us to, first and foremost, step back and take a look at the landscape of race relations in our country. Um, and what does it mean for us to familiarize ourselves with uh, the way that racial identity, racial diversity um, happens in our country, how people from different backgrounds are interacting, um, and sort of what is the truth about um, the existence of racism today in our culture. Uh, and we started off by saying that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have. Mm -hmm. And so um, many of us white people, white Christians, are taught that not acknowledging race uh, is meant to somehow um, lift up the equal status of people from all backgrounds, that we just don't see color because that would somehow influence the way that we would perceive someone and that we would treat them unequally. So this conversation is uncomfortable because we are taught not to talk about race. And all of a sudden, we're saying, guess what? We're going to talk about race. And that's what this is going to be explicitly about this morning and sort of ongoing with this initiative. So acknowledging that this is uncomfortable, but that that's our starting place, not the, the thing that's going to shut down the conversation. We just acknowledge that this is an uncomfortable place. We're going we're gonna to engage that anyway. So the bulk of our session on Sunday was taking a look at a diagram that Jamar Tisby has put together that tries to explain the difference between racist, non-racist, and anti-racist, which those of us who came to hear him speak at the Mercantile Library found to be really useful. Um, so we dived into that a bit. We talked about uh, Martin Luther King's commentary on the what we know as the Good Samaritan story. Um, and noting that there are differences in how we understand the lesson there, that it's not only to be kind to those we see beaten and robbed on the side of the road, but also to consider why they were beaten and robbed in the first place and what we might do to prevent um, that uh, sort of systemic reality um, in the future and, uh, and linking those two things together. 
and we close by doing some reflection on sort of how do we see ourselves in this conversation um, and, and, and what does it look like for us as individuals, as a community, to be taking steps forward into combating racism explicitly in our lives. Why don't we take a look at that bell curve and expand on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so we'll have an image for folks to take a look at. It's a little hard to describe it, but I'm going to try. So if you can picture a bell curve, and on, the, um, on either end, on the far end on the left, is the category of um, racist. And then on the far end on the right is the category of anti-racist. And in the middle of the bell curve, which takes up the majority of the space, is the category of non-racist. And what he's proposing here is that the majority of white Americans fall into this category of non-racist. So he defines racist as, in this instance, as folks who are blatantly making racist comments and um, engaging in racist racist activities, um, think of the KKK, for example. So racists are the sort of the people that we all point our finger to and we say, mm, that's not right, you shouldn't do that. That's not appropriate, that's not okay, that's not who we wanna be, those are the racists over there. And the anti-racists are folks who are really challenging the status quo and really trying to change the way that um, black people in particular, people of color in our country, experience life essentially. And then the middle are where he puts the majority of Americans, white Americans, as you know you know that you're not um, this blatant racist, meaning you're not engaging in these activities, but you sort of let yourself off the hook because you say, well, that's not me. And we all point our finger at the folks that would fall in that racist category and say, they're the problem. They're what's driving racism in America. Um, and we don't acknowledge the reality of the way that systems work in our country that continually allow for white people to be having a very different experience of life than um, people of color. Great, thank you. Um, Phil, I know that when you spoke on Sunday a little bit, you, you were able to speak to that bell curve yeah, for yourself. I, yeah. yeah, for me, for sure. You know, and I, I, I would say the reason that I felt really compelled to speak about how kind of to expand on that personally was because the language itself was something that had made me uncomfortable for a very long time and that I and and uh, for various reasons but I'd heard this language of anti-racism uh, 10 years ago and rejected it outright um, as sort of like one well of course we're anti-racism we're against racism racism is bad duh was my attitude but then also I kind of I mean it's it's almost just like in my DNA uh, and and this this is probably just for me and my therapist to deal with, right? But like, but but that idea of of well, I don't want to be anti something. I'd like to be pro something else. So instead of being anti racism, what if I'm pro reconciliation, right? What if I'm instead of anti racism, what if I'm pro equality? And and that's that's lovely. Um, I, I I like to be pro equality and pro uh, reconciliation. What I appreciated hearing uh, from Tisby in in his this model is the acknowledgement that it's not just about um, not being something. It is about actively fighting against what as a Christian I would call evil forces. Yeah. The evil of dehumanization, the evil of systemic racism, the evil of, of promoting and exploiting racial inequalities in our society for my benefit, um, th those evils need to be addressed 
not just what's the positive thing I can look at, but what are the negative things that we have to fight against and, and, and acknowledge and dismantle, right? Like if there's, a, if there's a bomb in the center of the room, you don't go, well, let's just think about where the bomb isn't, right? Like you dismantle this thing, hopefully. Um, so that's part of it. And the other part of it for me that was really important is we had some people who very rightly, I mean, Tisby is using this language in a way, in a very specific way, and not the way other people necessarily in the conversation talk about racism. So a lot of people, even in the room, there were some folks who said, I mean, the vast, the vast majority of Americans, I wouldn't, it's not fair to say they're not racist because they're participating in a racist system or there's latent racism and there's, there's um, Im, you know, um, implicit bias and things like that. Great, great, totally get that. I thought what I love about this bell curve is that it is in some ways both gentle and convicting. The way that it's gentle is when you talk to a lot of people, um, a lot of white people who say, I'm not racist. A lot of, a lot of responses to that would be, well, well, actually you are and here are all the ways you are. And those ways might actually be completely accurate. But we're also dealing with humans and humans have emotions. And when someone is actively trying to figure out like, I don't want to think negative things about people of other races, and I and I do differentiate myself from white nationalists, white supremacists, and um, and t white terrorists. Um, to say no, you're no different from them is 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 no way to move forward in relationship. And so what Tisby does that's really powerful is, is if someone says, if a white person says, um, I'm not I'm not racist, instead of saying, well, actually you are, uh, he goes, okay, you're not, fine, you're not, you're not. You're a non-racist, way to go. That's great, it's an acknowledgement that there is a differentiation between um, being a, a product of and a participant in a white supremacist system and being someone who actively works for white supremacy and, and the oppression and terrorization of others. He recognizes that difference and then says, cool, so now you're a non-racist, what are you going to do about it? And I think that that's the convicting part there's a gentleness in acknowledging the difference, and then there is in the, the follow-up is, you are a non-something. What does it look like to actively be against racism? So it is both an acknowledgement of where we are and a, um, um, a push, more than a nudge, a, co a, a, a compelling reason, a compelling argument that if you say that this is true about yourself, then what are you gonna do about it? and anti-racism in that spectrum of racist, non-racist, anti-racist. The racists and the anti-racists are the ones who are doing something. The non-racists are hanging out, oftentimes feeling really good about ourselves. For him to be kind enough, charitable enough to recognize that we're at least not actively doing the bad thing, but then saying, cool, what does it look like for you to partner with those who are trying to make a change. That to me is a really powerful um, way of thinking about this. And it opened me up, it changed my mind and, and, um, and has convicted me personally in, in terms of, I don't wanna just think these things or feel good things or nice things. I wanna make sure that I'm actively participating in the reconciliation by dismantling this stuff. Yeah. Um. On Sunday, you asked the reflection question, where did you find yourself or where do you find yourself on this bell curve? Yeah, 
so the one that stands out to me is I, I really appreciated Jim Vota's vulnerability in sharing. So Jim is a vestry member, and um, during the vestry retreat, we watched a video that Phil was just talking about called um, Color Blindness. And during the retreat, um, Jim shared that you know watching this video was tough because it went against how he had grown up understanding um, how you talk or don't talk about racial difference. And and again, going back to the first thing I said, it's you know you're you're brought up as you said about being told in school and that you know everybody's equal. And I'm just thinking about if you're like my age or whatever, yeah, it was pretty much just a, a blanket statement and there was no going deeper in any way, shape, or form as far as any person of color that was happened to be in the classroom with us. Um, and so then on Sunday morning, um, after kind of a week of mulling on that, mm -hmm. he was able to say, look, I acknowledge I've lived in this white world for 69 years and this is all really new, but it's really convicting and compelling. And uh, it, there was no sort of conclusion, and therefore it was just an acknowledgement that this is kind of shaking up um, the way that he has experienced you know, race in his life and, and thinking about what we ought to do or might do moving forward. And um, I just, I, I admire Jim a whole lot, and so I really um, appreciated hearing kind of where he was with this and, and his desire to, to keep engaging yeah, yeah. You sharing that, um, I, I often like to be very open when I feel goosebumps, and like that, that conversation around that is definitely something that, you know, kind of blossoms open and just creates that vulnerability to let in things that haven't been let in before. Yeah. One of the things that when you say that, that I think it, for me, it reminds me of why we as a church, what it means for a church to do this work. The church is not just another uh, political action committee or, uh, or just another nonprofit trying to do good works in the world. We do try to do good works, but we do them from a, in a particular context in a particular space. So it's not just, hey, how do we make sure church people are partnering with the right nonprofits and, and organizations, although that's something. It's also, as I've said a couple Sundays in a row, and I want to keep saying, these conversations are really tough. And frankly, they're not being had in places where people, by and large, feel safe having them. The opportunity to get goosebumps, the opportunity to be vulnerable about your own uh, experience, your own hopes and dreams, your own failings, uh, your context uh, uh, and, and how you're finally acknowledging that context in a different way. The church as a space where we are founded on and gathered around and, and, and inspired by love and, and, and God's love specifically, that, that that's the case, I believe, gives us an opportunity to create places for personal transformation. Now, we then say, with that personal transformation, how are we going to mobilize? Great. I love that. But where else in this country are people given that space and that opportunity to have the transformative experience 
and know that they're loved and cared for in that experience. Mostly it's, oh, we disagree, well, you're wrong. Or we disagree and let me tell you why you're wrong. Or actually, let's not connect at all. But one of the things we've been saying lately is seeing that moment of tension or that moment of difficulty as the beginning of the deepening of a relationship instead of the end. And I think that's what distinguishes doing this work in the church from doing it outside of the church, I hope. To add on to that, another question we posed at the end of the session was what does it look like for us to be moving from non-racist to anti-racist? And uh, Jamar Tisby proposes that there's this sort of flow that um, he uses the, the, the acronym ARC, so awareness, relationships, commitment. And in some ways, I'm just thinking about this now after what you said, the flow of that also to me mirrors what Christian community is about. So awareness is this study. He says explicitly, for white people, you have to start by reading the history. If you don't understand why we are here because of the 400 plus years of slavery in our the history of our country, you're not gonna get a good context for why we need to be doing this work. So awareness is what are the dynamics at play here? What are the statistics? But in I, I think of sort of the study part of sort of biblical literacy and study and understanding our tradition and then relationships, how we live out our faith with one another and that we sort of are sharpening one another and we are understanding our faith better in community and in, in those relationships and that exchange. Um, and then commitment is, all right, then what are you going to do but you can't jump to the commitment, which a lot of times when we're gung-ho about an issue, we go straight to, okay, let's do the thing. Right. And instead, we're saying, first we need to understand the lay of the land, then we need to be in partnership with people and to be living in community and understanding what the needs are. And I'm excited to explore what that looks like for us at Redeemer um, before we then land on a, okay, here's, here's the roadmap for where we're going to go. Right. You, saying that, that that really allows for a way of life with it rather than just this moment that we're in talking about it, yeah. that it lends itself to our DNA. Yeah. So That's good because it's probably then a cycle. Like you make a commitment and then you come back to some more awareness and then you're in the relationship right. and you're making, you know, it's constantly, you're kind of going it through also, that. It, yeah, we are such a results-oriented people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know I am as well, and this church is, and we like that. We like being able to point and say, here's the progress we've made, look at this. And so to acknowledge, the, and yet the work of the church is so fundamentally relational. Yeah. And relationships aren't generally about results. Like your closest, deepest relationships, the relationships that matter the most, you don't think of them in terms of like, what has that relationship done for me lately? Like, yeah. where's the list? Yeah. It's an interaction and a transformation through relationship uh, over time. So to think about our, our work with becoming beloved community from a relational aspect yeah. and understanding that arc um, and, that, and how that arc plays itself out is, uh, and I like you thinking of it cyclically, I think that's really beautiful. I just think that's a, a more honest and authentic expression of of how we can move forward, yeah. of how we can live into this. You know, forward's not even the point. Like how we can live deep, more deeply into our discipleship. I hope. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, Annie. Thank you for doing this. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. 
On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Thank you for listening and joining us on this journey. I invite you to join in this conversation in person on Sunday mornings in Lent at 11.30 at Church of the Redeemer in the Queen of the Midwest, Cincinnati, Ohio.